Hey friends, and welcome to The World Transformed. Tonight we're talking about global cooling. My name is Phil Bowermaster, and with me in the virtual studio is my co-host, Stephen Gordon. Hello, Stephen. Hey, Phil. How are you? Well, I am super fantastic. Happy Monday. How are you, my friend? Man, I am super cool and cooling, right? And uh... Super cool and getting cooler. Well, that is one right. possibility, one, one potential outcome here. And we've got a very special guest who's going to be with us all this week. But tonight is going to be talking with us about the idea of global cooling. I'd like to introduce John Palmer. John is a coach and speaker who is passionate about alternative energy, efficient government, and more recently, generous listening. Together with his wife, Doreen, he manages a coaching business which serves the emotional visions of expatriates returning home from overseas assignments. John's driving interest is sharing his passion that humans will continue on the path of creating a fabulous future as long as we keep our focus on creating that future and not on reporting and regurgitating the seemingly overwhelming problems that we see today. John, welcome to The World Transformed. Thank you, guys. I'm looking forward to it. Well, it's great having you with us, and we're going to get into later in the week some of this vision for creating a fabulous future. Can't wait to talk about that, but we thought we'd start it off this week. We'll, we'll, we'll work our way through the week going from the, maybe from the more serious to the, to the more happy. So let's delve into it a little bit. Uh, climate change, we talk about it here once in a while. Is it, is it something that people are not thinking about enough? Is it something that we should be thinking about more? Are we thinking about it in the right way? Give us your quick lowdown on climate change. When I talk to people about climate change, most people have a, a fairly low level of awareness, but it's something they don't want to think about. It, there is so much hype about the bad news, and you know, I think much of it with good reason, and so much controversy around it. They're, they're frightened quite frankly, and nobody knows what to do about it. On a personal level, people I talk to say, you know, what can I do to, to contribute? So it's a tough thing, and if we keep going down the path we're going on without making the changes we need to, it will be a disaster, according to all the scientists. Yeah, it seems yeah. unfortunate that it got turned into a uh, kind of a contentious political issue that may maybe... If that could have been avoided somehow, that would have been good, where people feel they have to entrench themselves around their position on it one way or another rather than, rather than have dialogue with each other about it, right? There's, there's, there's not a lot of, hey, let's talk about this kind of going on around climate change. But as you point out, the evidence is what it is. And so it takes you away from a place where you even need to ask, should we believe in it? But say for those who don't, even if, even if you're not certain about climate change or if you've Basically, you've, you've heard that it's not a thing to worry about, that it is this potentially this big overblown conspiracy, right, media creation, something like that. What do you think, even, even for those who are uncertain, even for those who don't trust the models, what's the rational approach on climate change? Well, there's a couple of things. I, one quote that I really like is Neil deGrasse Tyson, who, of course, is a very famous physicist, about global warming. He says, I'm often asked whether I believe in global warming, and now I just reply with, question, do you believe in gravity? <laughs> he and all the scientific community are absolutely convinced. And even if you don't believe that people to climate change is real, or if you believe that those, uh, if they're wrong, if the scientists are wrong, numerous industries will have been needlessly forced into developing cleaner alternatives. That would be a bad thing. Not. 
But if those who do not believe in climate change are wrong, we all die. Hmm. Yeah. That's, that's the bottom line for me. It's, it just is critical that we take the steps as if it is true. Absolutely. You, you've got enough evidence to believe it, to, believe, to, to accept that, that the, the consequences are sufficiently dire. And I think it's a really good point. What is the downside? Well, you work on cleaner energy, which we ought to be working on anyway. We were concerned yep. about the environment before it was put into climate terms, back when we were just worried about the environment. It's like, well, clean energy is a, is a way to protect the environment anyway. At that level, it seems like a no-brainer. I just sidebar real fast. You know, we've been talking a lot about flat earthers and people having these kind of wacky uh, conspiratorial views of what's happening in the world. You know, one of the big ideas now in the flat earth movement is they've rejected gravity. So I don't know if uh, getting back. No, to I hadn't grass, heard I, that. <laughs> yeah, they, they say gravity is a conspiracy. So, so uh, unfortunately, as obvious as Neil deGrasse Tyson's argument sounds there, I'm afraid there's some people it's not going to work with, which is, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which is not great. But so, so let's take it then. It's a serious problem. We know there's a lot of carbon in the atmosphere. We know we're putting more carbon into the atmosphere. So what's going to happen next? How, how can we possibly turn the tide on this? Well, it's, it's going to be a tough thing to do because we are emitting a significant amount more carbon than we're absorbing even today. And there has been some improvement and there's some good signs, but I think it's going to take a worldwide level, not just national level, but a worldwide level of commitment. When people find out that this is like a war, that's the thing that's going to go. The governments and people are really reluctant to spend money on something that they don't think, they don't know is, is real and coming. But we have to treat it like that. And I think, I think it's got to be mobilized like the U.S. did for World War II, where they really, really focus on it. And when that happens, I think there will be just a fabulous explosion of creativity. But I think those are the, that's the level that we have to do to, to, to reverse the tide. Without it, it's just it's going to be too little too late, I believe. Well, what about alternatives, John, that, that we would take right now if they were available? Things like fusion energy. If the technology was there this minute, and almost unlimited power with very little nuclear waste and, and no carbon admitted. We could really turn the tide at this minute if we had it and had something that was economical to do, right? For, for that particular one, even if that was economical, I mean, it hasn't been demonstrated. Even if we, had, if we knew exactly what to do, I think it would take 10 years yeah. before we... It would take five years at least to demonstrate it to the level we have to have. But we have alternatives right now, which we know work. Did you know that the cheapest power available, the cheapest wholesale power available in the U.S. today is land-based wind power? Wow. I didn't know that. There's, if we put our attention on and started supporting solar and wind power at the levels that would really make a difference, because not right now we're less than 3% of our power supply in wind and solar. But there is the possibility of really pushing that. If I were king of the world for a day, the first thing I would do is say, in the next three years, every single new home built has to have solar power on it. We've got all the technology in place. A lot of the technology has been recently developed around the grid connection, but that would go a long way to providing power for electric cars, which is the next thing that has to be done, and it has to be done soon. Of course, for electric cars so, to, to make the difference, you've got to run the 
grid off. You have to power it off things that are also non-carbon emitting, right? That's oh, yeah, absolutely. One. Power it off the grid is exactly right. But I know when I, I was looking into doing solar for my house, and all I had to do was add an extra panel, and I have enough for my car. Hmm. So uh, uh, remember so, we did a show years ago about there was a guy, and I can't remember who it was, big business guy, entrepreneur, flamboyant guy, was talking about putting these huge wind farms all across the Midwest. Who was that? Do you remember that? Joe? Oh, yes. Um, oh, gosh. Um, Texas Millionaire. Yeah, I know who you're talking about, but I can't remember his name either. None of us can remember his name, but we, yeah. we, we did a show about that. But something on that scale, right? Scale. I saw a story just yesterday, Phil, that was I, I thought was brilliant. But things like with wind and with solar, wind especially, there, the uh, electricity may come at a time that you don't need it on the grid. Mm-hmm. Um, they're talking about piping water from below the Hoover Dam using that power, right, the electricity produced by wind or solar or whatever, and putting it back in the lake above the dam. That way the, the dam itself serves as a battery for when you actually need the power. And I thought that was brilliant. I think that's a brilliant solution. Hoover Dam is a really good one because it's a very high dam. Yeah, that can be done. Of course, that's effectively a battery. Battery technology has come a long way, and I think probably the, the technical challenge that we'd face, the batteries one, battery would be uh, the one. But I, again, I think if we, if we really incentivize people to go find the best solutions and get them in, in place right now, I tell you a lot of problems with technology is that it's moving so fast, companies don't want to invest the money into a technology that will be obsolete in two years. That's, that's an interesting point. You look at something like solar and look at how much more efficient it's gotten for the investment over the last 10 years. This is something Kurzweil talks about quite a bit, actually, is how much more bang you get for your solar buck. <laughs> he, call, that, he calls it the solar singularity, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, that, that, that <laughs> yeah. we're heading towards. If you invested in it 10 years ago, relatively speaking, you've left money on the table compared to what you would get today, right? So there's the, the, so that is an issue. People look at that, and that's, that slows them down. But looking ahead at where we're going to be, I mean, we called the show Global Cooling, so Get us there, John. How do we get to global cooling from where we are? Well, the energy and transportation is a big one. You know, they're, they've got Dubai actually has uh, electric-powered individual airplanes, basically uh, drones for people in service right now, and that's a that's going to be a big change if we can reduce or eliminate the gases from airplanes. There's a lot of promise at small levels that we would have to really invest in. So that's one step. But some of the others, well, a lot of this is based on a book by Paul Hawken called Drawdown. And he's done a comprehensive plan for global warming. And the components of that are electrical generation, food, land use, buildings and cities, women and girls. The biggest way to reduce carbon footprint is actually with food. Food produces a tremendous amount of carbon dioxide. And if you think about it, it's pretty straightforward. The biggest contributor is that we eat meat. Mm -hmm. We eat beef. And beef is a huge contributor to the problem. And beef, not only do we have the transportation effect and all the CO2 produced by the food they eat, but also they fart a lot. Right. And a couple of developments. The methane is like 10 times worse than carbon, isn't it? Yeah. I think that's that's right on, Stephen. It's 10 times worse than carbon. And the digestive system for beef naturally produces, and the more grain they eat, the more exhaust they have. 
And of course, in this in this country, ninety percent or ninety five percent of our beef is grain fed. But there is one development there that they can do immediately. They've developed an enzyme that they put in the food that pre digests the food and it reduces the carbon emissions from the cows. That would go some of the way if we can get that implemented. And I'm pretty sure it's in production right now, but it's just real small. That's one. But a second one that's even more dramatic is to use 3D printed meat. And 3D printed meat, I have a friend that's actually tried chicken that's 3D printed. He could not select what piece of meat was was real chicken and what piece of meat was uh, 3D printed. I suspect, uh, particularly if you're eating something like a chicken nugget that's already almost made into a paste prior to production anyway, uh, then uh, 3D printed probably is right on them. Yeah, uh, but I'm having trouble imagining a, th- a 3D uh, T-bone steak. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think you can get to ground. You get to ground. You get to ground beef a whole lot easier, I think. Uh, but uh, <laughs> well, well, it's interesting. Both with both with the vat meat and with the there's there's been this big push towards much much better vegetable textured meat substitute. Right? What was they called the Impossible yeah. Burger? This this thing they've come up with. Yeah, that's right. It, I think it is called the Impossible Burger. And I had one of those about a month ago restaurant in Denver. And so they're available now. You can order these things and tasted like a burger to me. I was impressed at how close they've gotten them. So it'll be interesting to see kind of a, I hope, kind of a race between these two technologies, actually growing the meat in vitro and selling it that way and actually coming up with end of the production line substitutes for meat, both of which I think are going to be popular and both of which eliminate or substantially reduce the kinds of problems you're talking about. The second problem with in the food is is the fact that we till the soil. Mm-hmm. Tilling yeah. the soil is a practice that started because they didn't have the technologies we do today. But now they're finding that tilling the soil adds a tremendous amount of carbon to the air from from all the different. Plus, it requires more fertilizer and more pest control. So. Each one of those by itself adds more CO2 to the air. But a surprising fact to me was that 30% of the U.S. farms are now, they're doing now low-till or no-till practices. So you don't see these massive swaths of tilled soil and the tractors out there tilling the soil prior to the planting. But it is more labor-intensive, which I don't think is a bad thing. Of course, uh, a little further on down the road, we, we perhaps get to vertical farming or urban farming techniques. Uh, yeah. That would be even better. We, we still got a ways to go to prove that. Though. A vegetarian diet would help, but waste reduction, I know there's a big push now to do waste production, and there's some recent applications, phone apps, that restaurants are using in combination with food, food shelters and, and people that are providing food for the homeless, where they a restaurant will put on the app, I've got this kind of food available for for use. You send a truck over and then the, the other people on the other end will send a note and say, okay, I've got that one, and they'll set it up and then send a truck and go get it. And th- the expansion of that effort would go a long way to reducing waste in the U.S. I don't, I don't remember the exact number, but something like 40 to 50% of the food in the United States actually goes to waste, which is a disaster as far as i can tell that's outrageous isn't it jeez yeah and that would also help well one of the things i wanted to talk about and this one will surprise almost everybody that i know a soil health partnership was led by monsanto and no-till farming saved 
quarter of a gigaton of carbon emissions over the last 20 years. Wow. And as I said, one-third of U.S. farming is now no-till. Yeah, and that improves. That also improves the soil, reduces erosion, reduces the amount of soil that goes into the into the ocean, reduces the problem with the algae blooms in the ocean. So there are a lot of benefits to that. What I like about that is that's one of the less you don't hear about that one, right? What, no, this this is a potential major contributor to helping solve this problem that you just don't you don't hear much about at all. Yeah. The the next area is land use, and I only want to talk about one thing in land use, and this is, to my mind, this is one of the most critical things we need to get done, is the tundra, if we, according to the scientists that study this stuff, if we get a two degree centigrade rise in the average temperature of the earth, the tundra will start to release methane at levels that will really accelerate global warming and accelerate our demise the only solution that anybody's come up with believe it or not is to put animals in the far north to graze the soil what happens in the tundra is if it snows and you have snow on the ground the snow keeps the ground relatively warm and it prevents the air from freezing the tundra and the the scientists well, in fact, it wasn't even a scientist. It was a guy in Russia that came up with the idea. He observed that animals kicked the snow away to get the, get down to the grass, and it kept the, the ground warmer. Now this is a proven theory. In fact, they had a Madam Secretary uh, episode about it. And if we can get animals, and we can't get mastodons, which was which the original ones, but if we can get <laughs> buffalo and and uh, reindeer in massive numbers to be up there and doing this, it it can be done. But again, it's it's a it's something that has to be started right away, and it's a you know it's expensive. This would be something that would be done primarily in Russia. Then it sounds like on that side, or would we do it? No, it's, uh, it in Canada. Canada, as Canada well? has the, but Canada and Russia, actually, Canada has the biggest. Canada and Alaska have the biggest amount but it's pretty close or Russia, the russians have a tremendous amount of it as well how do you suddenly have a big influx of wildlife right like that i mean well i think if you incentivize people to do it is the thing you you give the you start with giving the, the eskimos the animals and have them start start managing it you know there, yeah, right. there are people that live up there now and they really live off the land but but we can give them a big purpose to, to do this. But the how is, is something that has to be worked out. Again, it takes a massive effort to do it. It sounds like uh, okay, um, so we've got t- two interesting out-of-the-box ideas there. What else you got? Buildings and cities. The one that's already being doing is LED lighting. And I think we need to have a, a mandatory thing just to stop producing incandescent bulbs and standard fluorescent bulbs and say, you know, guys, you got to do LED lighting. There's just no way. It just the efficiency difference is so high. It's just unbelievable. Now you save 90% of the power required to get the same amount of light. And, and that's another good example of where we had a technology come along that was not as good, right? Which was the compact fluorescent. I, I go into houses and I go, 
what are you using those for? <laughs> yeah, for one thing, the light's not great. But for another thing, they were kind of an environmental problem in their own right. You know, it's like right. This supposed to be, uh, you know, I mean, they are much more energy efficient than an incandescent bulb, but with a huge downside. With the LEDs, you don't have you don't have those issues. There, you don't yeah, have the big right. disposal it's problems. It's better in yeah, all ways, so, except for except for the initial expenditure. Uh, LED bulbs are still a little more expensive, but uh, it's uh, but you get a longer life out of them, so it works out. And it's an easy step to take. Yeah, I I think they're they're very inexpensive. I, like a dollar yeah. a piece now instead of 50 cents or something like that. Yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not bad at all now. You had mentioned earlier uh, moving uh, to a vegetarian diet. There are, there are those of us, including myself, John, that are not ready to take that step. But what if I re- removed beef from my diet and went to chicken? Five times less the carbon emissions if, uh, for the, the given amount of food. Except if we all went to chicken, I think we'd run out of chickens pretty quickly. <laughs> well, we just have to up the we'd have to up the amount of chickens we're producing. I guess like although that, that would yeah. give you the animals to move up to Alaska, right? All the cows are not eating. Right? <laughs> I'm not sure the chickens can survive. Up send, there. send them up there and let them trample the snow. Oh gosh! I guess the most surprising thing that Paul Hawken talks about in Drawdown is the benefit in developing countries of empowering women and girls. And how do we fix the, the environment? I'm sorry, how do we get the global cooling through that? So what happens is today girls are not educated. They have a lot of kids starting when they're 13 or 14. They have to use uh, stoves that produce a tremendous amount of not only CO2 but carbon. They 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 burn dung in india i was in a city in 10 years ago the amount of of smoke in the air from dung is amazing and it's mm. just it's just irresponsible of us but the biggest problem is that they are not educated and not empowered to do something about it once we give them the power to do they they start taking all the steps that are needed especially in in developing countries the women are way more responsible and and take take action when they're trained to do so to care for their kids and make sure their kids have a future and the men have not traditionally taken that role and if we can do that he's saying something like 135 gigatons of emissions per year can be reduced interesting again that's a you know it's a fairly long term thing and the the bottom line on almost all of these things is it takes a huge political commitment and a willingness of the people to change. And I see the willingness to change uh, is on the increase with all the, the, the flooding that's starting to happen with sea level rise, with the huge storms that are obviously uh, affected by global warming, despite what a lot of people will say there's no doubt that the storms are bigger now than they've ever been before and and the, and the scientists i think are accurate about that it's interesting to think that the will to change comes in different varieties than you might look for right in order to bring about the change when you talk about empowering women and girls around the world people aren't going to think of that as a straight line to climate change they think of other benefits probably coming from 
from doing something like that. A guy we have on the show quite frequently, Brian Wong, has been working on a book called Basic Power, and he talks about bringing mm-hmm. a, a plan for bringing electricity to the part of the population in the developing world that doesn't have it. And one of the reasons for that, and you do it pretty much in a not not entirely off the grid, but but not by expanding the existing grid, by by bringing in new smaller local solutions. And one of the things you can do there is you immediately make it possible for women not to spend the majority of their time going to get clean water or washing clothes by hand. Right? Those are the, like the two big things that uh, that their entire lives are are spent doing. So you can you can automate both of those activities, you can purify the water and, and you can free them up to uh, wash clothes with a machine, suddenly they've got more time. Also, they've got power coming in, so, they're, so they've got access to information. And this wonderful like economic benefit occurs at the same time, right? Where they're able, they've, they've got time to produce other things, they can, they can become economically productive within their communities. And it's it's kind of this virtuous cycle of fixing the fixing the environment, fixing the economy, improving the people's way of life, and you stop the dung burning, right? It all it all kind of right. it all kind of happens yeah. at once. There's there's a synergistic kind of thing that happens when you start improving one thing, and then and then other things start start happening. A, virtu- yeah. a virtuous cycle, as opposed to what we often see a, a negative cycle. It's, that is really key, Phil. What you're talking about is that. And the evidence of how the smartphones are changing the developing world is amazing. We're getting in India they they sell smartphones for like fifteen dollars. They're you know, really basic, but they have access to all more information than the president of the United States had thirty years ago. Right, right. And that enables them to do this. There's a really great story that that uh, I've heard. An Indian developer or an Indian mogul, he was a business uh, developer or business person, he lived right next to a slum or his office was right next to a slum. And he wanted, uh, he wanted to run an experiment to see how intelligent these kids really were because none of them went to school. And he took a computer, put it out his uh, wall, cut a hole in the wall, put a computer out there, protected so they couldn't take it, and just watched as the kids started to play with it and learn. And about two years later, he asked one of the 12 or 13-year-olds, what have you learned from the computer? And she said, well, I haven't quite mastered some of the medical training that I've been taking, but I know a lot more than I did. Hmm. (laughs) That's awesome. No schooling. Amazing. Yeah. That, so uh, give people access to to information and they will take it. So in or, some ways, in some ways, we are doing the right things to help take this on. And I wonder if, in the end, if we can't muster the political will to 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 make the big changes top down, if there's another alternative path where this some of the some of the huge changes happen bottom up, right? As a more informed world, as as people get more information as they see the benefits in doing land use differently and tilling the soil differently and eating different kinds of food and organizing themselves different socially. They see benefits related to those things that aren't even climate, right? That's not even about the climate right. and adopt them for that reason. Is it possible that we, that we evolve to then have the political will to, to fix those things? You know, my personal opinion is it's, it, 
we're too far down the path. If, if this had been 20 years ago, I think your solution would be viable. But people are too invested and too spending all their time making a living today doing what they do, and we're doing the wrong things. Mm. And we, we, have to, we have to have a, a national focus, a world focus on everybody doing the things that are going to benefit the planet. I don't see how it can happen without it. Not to say that what we're doing is wrong. It's the right thing. I think one of the things, one of the benefits of, of the Trump administration's denial of global warming is that individual citizens and states and cities have started to take the lead in doing it themselves. It has empowered individuals to do more things. But I still think it's we have to have a national level programs, especially for things like uh, the tundra work. That ain't going to happen until unless you have a government go up and, and do it. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's it's hard to it's hard to imagine that one happening organically, and maybe and maybe a lot of these uh, a lot of these bigger projects. Well, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to see how it unfolds. Definitely, there are. There are paths forward that we hadn't thought about, so it's great to get those perspectives. John, it's great talking with you about global cooling, and I'm sure this is a subject that we'll have an opportunity to come back to at some point. Yes, I hope that this stimulates somebody out there to take some action and help us get the political will to make these changes. Well, John, we're going to be talking with you throughout the rest of the week, so thanks for being with us. Stephen, it's great having you with us, great having you all with us, and we will be back on Wednesday with a brand new show. Until next time, live to see it. Mm-hmm.